Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Barry Nailbuff, who is the author of a new book called Split the Pie. And he's also the co-founder of Honest Tea, which I'm a big fan of, and a professor of negotiation and strategy at Yale University. Barry, welcome to World of DAS. Amazing to be here. Thank you. So excited. All right. Now you just published this new book, Split the Pie, and it kind of outlines how to become a better negotiator. And you dive in how to cooperate in situations where there's kind of a zero sum mentality and kind of the quote unquote, win the negotiation. What's the most important tactic people should apply in the kind of the middle of a zero sum negotiation? I want to start by questioning the question of whether or not there's such a thing as a zero-sum negotiation. Okay. I love and this. People think, well, okay, we're trying to divide $100, and the more I get, the less you get. But one thing that makes negotiation different is that if we don't reach an agreement, we both get zero. And so, in fact, reaching agreement is a positive-sum experience. We also know from lots of experiments in the ultimatum game and other ways that if people think they're being treated unfairly, they will reject a deal that even seems to be in their interest. And so if we can come up with a way for people to understand what is a fair outcome, then we can reach agreements and move away from the lose-lose outcome that too often exists in a zero-sum case. And almost everything you can expand the pie, even just by being nice to somebody, adds extra thing in the negotiation. Absolutely. I'm all about can we first agree to split the pie and then focus our efforts on growing it? But even in a case where that's not possible, you can still expand the pie by having an agreement. And that's what people forget. It's like if you're playing poker and you think it's a zero-sum game, but somebody comes in and steals all the chips, that's the (laughs) result of a no-agreement case in negotiation. How should we like define the pie to begin with? So it's a very funny thing that in negotiations, people don't always appreciate what it is they're negotiating over. And let me give you a simple example to illustrate. We have Anju and Bharat, who have the potential to invest together to buy a CD. If Anju acts on her own, she has $5,000 to invest, which she gets 1% on, or $50. Bharat has $20,000 to invest at 2%, in which case he gets $400. But if they combine their funds, they have $25,000 to invest at 3%, or 750. To get that 750, the two of them have to agree on how to split it up. So what's your view? What do you think? How should they split it up? Well, I think it's really the difference between what Andrew and Barat were already going to get on their own and then the 750. And then okay. we take that difference and maybe we divide it in half or something. Okay. So that you have read the book, you're brilliant, whatever it is, you've got the idea of the pie. The vast majority of people out there think Anju is investing one-fourth as much as Barat. So Barat, because he's investing four times as much, should get four times the amount of interest. Divide that 750, 600 to 150. Yeah. We'll both get 3%. But as you've pointed out, the reason to do this negotiation is to go from 50 plus 400, or 450, all the way up to 750. That extra 300 is what they get by reaching agreement. They're both equally necessary. So that's the pie, and that's what you divide up, 150, 150. And of course, if I'm Anju, even if I get 
$100 there, I'm probably pretty happy and Brock gets $200 extra, even if no, we divide I, that 300 I'm not so happy. I'm not no, so happy okay, about so that. We always have to divide it in that extra case 50-50. Yeah, I think the smaller sides of this world have been bullied or misinformed into thinking that they have less power in this negotiation. Hmm. And that's one of these myths that's out there that you have a worse BATNA, a worse fallback, the $50 versus the 400 Therefore, you should get less in the negotiation. And the answer yeah. is no. Barat can't do anything without Anju. And therefore, she is equally necessary. And that's why she deserves half. Let's play devil's advocate because there are many Barats and there are many Anjus out ah. there. And they can pair up with one another. And so Barat could go find another yeah. Anju. In some ways, Barat is a little bit more necessary okay. than Anju. So what you pointed out is if there's a Chirag out there who Barat can go to instead, who can provide another 5000 then we have a different pie. And it may be easier to find a new $5,000 player than a new $20,000 player. And I absolutely agree with that. But that doesn't change the notion of divide the pie. It changes what the pie is. It's the extra value that Anju brings to Barat compared to what Chirag can bring to Barat. And so yep. what I first want to do is get us to understand power in a two-person negotiation and then we can move to multiplayer negotiations. Got it. But in some ways, part of the reason the little guy has always had less power is because there's lots of little guys in some ways or no. Yeah. If you're a commodity out there, then yeah, you have the extra value created by an agreement with you is zero. I got that. Yeah. But there are a lot of times when you are still essential to the deal and you just happen to be smaller. You then misinterpret this as a situation where you can be replaced. That makes a lot of sense. Now, there are many different negotiation books that have been written over the years. There's sure. classics like Getting to Yes, which kind of teaches to focus on the counterparty's interests. Not there's positions. Beyond, exactly. And then there's Beyond Reason, which kind of suggests leaving emotions out of negotiation. What do you think these classics get wrong or not cover? So some people will accuse me of being a Mr. Spock, a Mr. Logic view of negotiation. And- I like to combine Spock and Kirk. So I'm all in favor of understanding emotions, being empathetic, and books like Getting to Yes and Beyond Reason are great in that regard. They help people focus on interests. They help them expand the pie, but they don't help them understand how to divide the pie. And my view is that if you haven't figured out how to divide the pie, you have to watch your back the whole time. You have to think it's like a Miranda writes. Everything you say can and will be used against you. And therefore, you're not willing to open up and share the information necessary to expand the pie. And then while emotion is important, the fact is that we have too little logic in negotiations and that one way to bring down the temperature is to show and provide logical arguments. I used to think when I was younger that I always want to negotiate with somebody who's not very smart, not on, and I could like pull one over them. Yeah. I found that as I got older, that the smarter the person I'm negotiating with, the easier it was to get to a deal, especially a good win-win deal where I'm winning, yeah. but they're coming away happy as well. Is part of like a good negotiation just like picking your counterparty? I agree with you 100% that I would rather negotiate with somebody who understands what they're doing. One of the things I think this book will help you with in terms of is educating the other side to help them understand what's really going on. They'll come in with some view of fairness. Oh, I'm bringing four times as much money, and therefore I should be getting more. And until they see the pie logic, they're going to be stuck in the old way of doing things. 
So I'd like to start negotiation even with a discussion of how it is we're going to negotiate. Can we agree to take this perspective of let's make a big pie and split it? And if not, well, okay, then let me show you some examples. Let me explain to you what's going on here. A few times in my life where we've had like a very complex negotiation, we brought in like a professional mediator Mm -hmm. to help. I generally found that to be very, very helpful in kind of setting the tone and helping us level set. Do you think that should be used more widely or do you think that's like a crutch? No, I think oftentimes one of the best ways to be a negotiator is to act like the mediator, is essentially to be the impartial person who said, look, no argument I'm making is something that I wouldn't make for your side either. Essentially, when I'm talking about splitting the pie, note it's not an argument in favor of Anju or Bharat. It's saying, this is why we're having the negotiation. And so recognizing symmetry and being impartial is a great way to persuade the other side that what you're doing is fair. Being impartial is not easy to do, and maybe it's impossible to be completely impartial. So that's Um, sometimes how a mediator can help. The idea of trying to take on that role yourself is something that I think is a good exercise. Essentially putting yourself in their shoes as well. Putting yourself in both people's shoes in some ways. You don't want to ignore your interests. You also don't want to ignore theirs. One of the things I like to say is, look, I want to give the other side what it is they want. Not because I like them, but because if they get what they want, I can get what I want. And you can turn that around. It also means I have to tell them what it is that I want because they don't know. And I want them to give me what I want so they can get what they want. I try to do this sometimes with my kids when we're playing board games where we Mm -hmm. have to negotiate and stuff like that. But sometimes they don't believe that I'm putting their interests in the right place. Like, how do you get the other party to also understand you're also trying to grow the pie for everybody? I think it helps to calculate what the pie is, show them, open up your spreadsheet sometimes. People are so scared of sharing numbers, but actually it's like, look, I'm going to make a lot of money in this deal, but so are you. And here's my calculations of how well you're doing. And in fact, the way I've calculated it, we're both coming out equally ahead. So this is great. In some sense, that's why I want to get up front this notion of our focus is we've agreed to split the pie. So now all of our effort is on making that pie big. In the interest rate example, the optimization, I think, is pretty simple. They both want to get more money. And usually a more complex negotiation Each side may have like a different optimization function. And part of the negotiation is really trying to understand what each side's optimization function is. Okay. So let me give you another recent example. My mother was living in Sarasota, renting a house. And the person for whom she was renting decides to put the house on the market. And he calls her up and says, I'm going to list it at 800,000, but for you, 790. So now first question, what's the pie in this negotiation? Well, If he sells to her, they can save a 5% real estate commission or $40,000. So I say, you should split it 20-20. And he comes back and says, it's a hot market. So that's why I should get three quarters of it. And my response is, the fact that it's a hot market is why the price is high. But essentially, if you sell to anybody else, you're going to get 760. And if my mom buys the equivalent house from anybody else, she's going to pay 800. So to save that 40, you need her to be the buyer and she needs you to be the seller. So he agrees that what we're going to do is split it, the 40, 20, 20. And now there's a question of what's the market price. And my view is that's a data exercise. And what I'm trying to often do is convert a negotiation into a data exercise. Now to your next question, how do we expand the pie? 
Well, having agreed to do that, the next step he proposes, he's now a convert, is why don't we use the same lawyer? And instead of each of us hiring lawyers and each paying legal costs, we can hire one lawyer who's independent, basically your mediator version, if you'd like. And so we hired one lawyer rather than two and saved another $2,000. Interesting. Okay. One of the things I found is just a negotiation, even over like a contract, if I'm selling software or services or something like that to somebody is really trying to understand like what else are they optimizing for or a business development deal. Sometimes they want short-term revenues because they have to hit Mm -hmm. their quarter. Sometimes they're looking much more long-term, but they're not always willing to put that on the table because they feel like maybe they're giving up power in some way. Even if obviously they may not always know it, but if they do know it, how do I get them to open up? Maybe one way is just to tell them what my optimization function is. So two things here. One is you can say to them, my goal in this negotiation is to give you what you want. And not because I'm nice, because basically I want you to want to do this deal. The best way to make that happen is you're getting what you want. And I don't know it. And I can't give you what you want if you don't tell me. And yeah, I know you want a lower price. Okay. There's going to be a conflict over that. But there are other issues, and help me understand your key performance indicators. What are you being judged on? Because I want to make you look like a hero. Other side to that is, if we've already agreed, I'm sounding like a broken record here, on that we're going to split the pie, then there's a lot less danger in opening things up. Because they know they're going to be getting a fair share of any value they create. Interesting. In many cases, though, in negotiation, like I'm happy to give them way more than 50% of the pie. I want to get a deal done. Like I'm happy to give them 60% of it or even more than percentage of pie, as long as like it's also benefiting me. Like I don't need to get to 50 often. Well, all right. I'm happy to negotiate with you in that case. But (laughs) look, I mean, one, the pie may be what's going on outside this negotiation. You be getting a better reputation for your company. You may be getting references. Those are all things that are part of the pie. You can't just look at all these things. You can't just look at the profits associated with this one deal. I mean, also, it's my time, and I might value my time more than the counterparty values their time, so I'm happy to give them a little bit more to get it done quicker or something. Well, that's basically a way of expanding the pie, is that essentially less time means a bigger pie. One notable negotiation of your career is you sold Honest Tea to Coca-Cola. Initially, you sold a portion of the company, and then you Mm -hmm. eventually sold the whole company. How did you navigate that situation? So we had a challenge because at the time, we were too small to really be sold to Coke. We were $23 million in sales, and Coke is awesome at bringing companies from $100 million up to a billion, which creates a huge amount of value. They're also- Because they're just mainly huge distribution systems. Huge distribution, stuff, yeah. production. They got that part down. They're also able to bring companies from $50 million down to zero. And so we knew we were too small. They knew we were too small. And so we both agreed that it would make more sense for them to buy us in three years rather than right away. And during those three years, they would help us with production, with distribution, with purchasing. But I imagine you can see what the problem is as a result of that agreement. That we have to figure out what the value is in three years or something. Yeah. And in particular, they were worried that here they are going to help us do all these things. And then you'll sell to Pepsi or something. No, no, we sell to them, but at a higher price. Essentially, it's like, we don't want to help you and then have to pay more for it. And my argument was, well, actually, you shouldn't pay full price for the stuff you're helping us with, but you should pay half price because just like we need you to get that help, you need us to be the vehicle to be helped. Only by putting the two of us together do we create a bigger pie. 
So what should we do? You should pay full price on sales up to X and half price on sales above X, where X is what we could have achieved without them. And so the idea is that essentially to the extent that we are creating a pie, sales above X. Okay. And you're making some sort of revenue multiple or something like that. Exactly or, a revenue okay. multiple. Yep. And it's true that we didn't know what X was. And it's also true that we don't exactly know what the market multiple is. But we agreed on this general formula of full price of sales up to X, half price thereafter in the first hour. And then we spent a week looking at data, going back and forth about what is an appropriate market multiple and what is it that we think we could achieve without their help. Essentially, though, we knew we were going to have a deal once we agreed on the general approach because instead of arguing about what the price is, we were talking about how we could make this pie big, which is a very productive conversation. Interesting. There's another thing where Coke, after they acquired Honesty, they wanted to increase the amount of sugar in certain lines of their beverages. And I think this low sugar and calorie content was core to your product design kind of convince them to keep the formula the same. That's like a little of a different type of negotiation where you're like, look, it's in your best interest to do this. The particular product you're talking about is Honest Kids. Honest Kids, yep. And what we had done in our focus groups is we had continually reduced the amount of sugar in Honest Kids to the point where it was the minimal amount of sugar such that kids wouldn't throw the pouches against the wall. (laughs) And if you'd like, what we did was, in some ways, the opposite of a blind taste test. In a blind taste test, your mouths are open and your eyes are closed. The flip of that is your mouth is closed and your eyes are open. And what that is, is you're reading the label and not trying it. And so we want to have the best label possible on the juice pouch because the parents are buying it and they wanted this thing to look great. So it had to be a great product on the label, provided the kids would also drink it. So when Coke went and invest in us, they paid a stupid amount of money to do a focus group in which they reported back 90% of kids preferred honest kids to be sweeter. And we said, don't waste your money on that focus group. We knew that. And that isn't what our product design was. Our design wasn't to maximize the choice of the kids. It was to make the label as great as possible, subject to kids being willing to drink it. Right. We want the uh, parents to be happy and hopefully the kids also enjoy it. Exactly. We'll drink it. That was the goal. And ultimately, reason prevailed. So they did waste some money on extra focus groups. But when they understood what our real product was about, and the good news was during the three years that where we were growing from 23 million to 75 million, we had control and we had the ability to make sure they didn't make those changes and they got comfortable with the way we were doing things during that time. So it's actually another general comment I'd say about acquisitions is oftentimes the buyer comes in and makes a lot of changes. And instead, this allowed us time to show that we knew what we were doing and let the acquirer get comfortable with our strategy. And then they didn't feel the need to change it. It's interesting when I was the CEO of LiveRamp, we sold the company and the acquirer wanted to make all these changes. They mm-hmm. wanted to change all the reporting lines. They wanted us to use yeah. Outlook instead of so IT things that they wanted us to change. They wanted to put in all these processes for spending money and HR processes and stuff like that. And because I guess I was in the position that I was in, I could just like, I couldn't be fired. I would just put a stop on all mm-hmm. those things. And I was enough of a roadblock 
and we were successful enough over, yeah. let's say, ensuing nine months that by, let's say, nine months after the acquisition, they just stopped trying to impose yeah. all of their corporate craziness on it. But you kind of have to be willing to be fired sometimes to do that, right? Or could I have done that in a more polite way, maybe, where, no, no, where you I did, brought I, them away? So we had a contractual that for three years, we had control. Okay, They would you. say so, things like, three years from now, we're going to change this on day yeah. one. And the answer is when that happened, they didn't change it because they got to understand this was the right strategy for our brand. Got it. So just by them watching and stuff like that. And they, seeing us be successful. they reasonable, they could change their mind. And certainly in our case, the CEO, he was a reasonable person and he was able to change his mind, which was a good thing. You show them data and you show that it's working and you show it's not causing conflicts and that different answers are right for different brands. And Let's face it, I think that the whole notion of a blind taste test is actually messed up because if you go to the place where people are maximizing taste, then you've made it too sweet because right. you can cut back on taste a little bit. You can cut back on sugar a little bit, lose almost nothing on taste and save a lot on calories. And so one big mistake that people make is they focus on maximizing one dimension. Yep. as opposed to maximizing the whole package. And also, it's also, there's the, how it makes you feel like that second. It's also how it makes you feel a couple hours later and how mm-hmm. you think about it and how you remember it and stuff. What are some other like non-obvious mistakes people make during negotiations, whether it's corporate M&A or job offer? One of the things I like to propose is the yes, if rather than the no, unless. The reason is, is that you're trying to get somebody to make the extra leap for you. You want them to go out on a limb. You want them to push for what you're asking. And the challenge is that they don't know if they're going to be successful. And they've probably been burned in the past by people who are using them as leverage to get a better deal at their existing company or with some other job they're looking for. And so helping the other side know that if they do these things, they will be successful, will allow them to go the extra mile for you. And that was relevant in our case with Honest Tea. They had given us a call. We wanted to be able to force them to buy the company at the specified price. In order to get a put, they needed to get board approval. And the people at VEB, it was beyond their authority. The last thing they wanted to do was go to the board, get approval for a put, and then have Pepsi come and buy the company. And so it was, okay, we're prepared to do this, if it's a done, 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 done deal. And it was a yes, if. And so we said, yes, if. And so either the other side should say yes, if to you, or you should volunteer yes, if to them. And this is partially reason like an M&A or a funding round, like where one of the sides will sign some sort of exclusive period for some Mm -hmm. period of time or something, I presume. Sure. And that's one way of avoiding the being used as a stalking horse. But also, even in the pairwise negotiation, the other problem is, okay, they offered you this. Now you're going to come up with some other demand. And they don't want to have to go back to the board or they don't want the deal to fall through having gone to the board. And so they want to know you're completely done. My daughter did this with me. Instead of saying no, she said yes if. I wanted her to join the high school math team. And on her list of 100 favorite things to do, it wasn't on the list. (laughs) But she didn't just say no. She said Dad, I'll do it, yes, if we can get a dog. Okay, got it. Okay. And we got a dog. 
All right. And, and the dog fair, made fair it 13 fair. years, the math team one year, but it was still a great deal. And so people are just too quick to say no, as opposed to here's what it would take for me to say yes. So just kind of like almost thinking through like, well, what's the best case scenario in a way, rather than what's the worst case scenario. Yeah. And figuring out, look, if you can't come up with a yes, if, then you shouldn't be having this negotiation. We recently hired a senior person at SafeGraph. And one of the things like when we were negotiating salary, there was something about him. He was just really, really good. He was really great at just putting away the small things. A lot of times people have a lot of small ass. Yeah. He was really good about just aligning interests, understanding mm-hmm. what we're both doing. It made the negotiation, which sometimes can be fraud or mm-hmm. difficult. It made it a pleasure. And of course, like we're going to be working together yeah. afterwards. So coming in with this really great relationship, how do we get more people to be like yeah. this guy? So first off, people forget the fact that the salary negotiation is often the first time your employer is actually really getting to know you. (laughs) That until then, everything is lovey-dovey and it's sort of recruiting activity. And this can be the first challenging conversation that folks have. Yep. And as you pointed out, the fact that you like this person in this situation actually meant you were more willing to go the extra mile for this person. So one of the things that we talk about right at the beginning of the book is you don't have to be a jerk to be a successful negotiator. And what's crazy is my students at Yale, they are smart. They are empathetic until they become negotiators. (laughs) And they throw that all out the window. And they're actually also not very good at being jerks, which is another problem for them. And so having this framework and focusing on the pie allows you to make the other side like you because, look, our goal when I'm coming to work for you is to make this whole thing successful. One question I like to ask in the job negotiation like this is, help me understand why other super smart people, super talented people you've hired haven't worked out. And if you discover that, then the other person can either say, I guess this is not a great fit for me, or here's why I'm not like those other folks. And that's why this is going to be a successful hire for you. And that makes you want the person even more. Another side where when people leave your company, either they left because their poor performance, they were mm-hmm. let go, or they left because they had another opportunity to mm-hmm. leave. And I found that in general, you can learn a lot about a person on their way out yes. as well. And I've been so impressed with, at least at SafeGraph, obviously we have new employees come out of, of course, we always have new employees leave. We have employees leave all the time. The one employee who left. We've had quite a few over the years and they've been on the whole, like incredibly great. And they just like way better than maybe in my past companies. And maybe there's something in the water or something, but I feel like people are Mm -hmm. just, they're thinking long-term. They're very generous. They're helpful. You can imagine there can be some bitterness when somebody leaves a company and they're usually extremely positive and they're very, very helpful and et cetera. What it tells me is that the work they've done with you has allowed them to go on to amazing opportunities. Right. And it's unfortunate that there wasn't the right next step for them at your company. But okay, I say at Yale when we hire somebody, it's not our goal to help you get tenure at Yale. It's our goal to help you get tenure at a great university. And if that's what happens, we've succeeded. I know you're super interested in this concept of declining marginal utility. I know that was like one of the drivers when you started Honest Tea. Basically, incremental sugar doesn't necessarily enhance the taste after a certain point. How do you think we should apply this idea of declining marginal utility to life? 
Okay, so now I'm going to go totally nerd out on you here. Yeah, all right, let's uh, do it. If you'd like. So remember, I'm an MIT math major. What is true at a maximum when you maximize a function? I guess that you're only going down. It's or? true. The first derivative is also zero. It is always flat at the top of a maximum. Changing the variable isn't going to make it go up. What it also means is moving down from this parameter that you're picking isn't going to cost you anything. And so it means that you should never be maximizing on any one variable because that variable you can change without costing you anything and help in some other way. So it means you shouldn't be maximizing on time in terms of speed. It shouldn't be maximizing in terms of taste. And so people forget about the fact that when you have optimized over one particular parameter, you're doing too much of that activity. That's hard in companies because usually there's some set of KPIs. Maybe you need a suite of KPIs or something that, 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 that sometimes conflict with one another. Exactly. In fact, you want them to conflict with each other so that you can maximize this broad set. And one of the things that we also do is we sometimes keep the objectives at Yale a little bit ambiguous. So it's not like we just want you to maximize teaching or just maximize research. Because sometimes some people are going to be better at teaching, other people better at research, and we don't want you to spend all your efforts on just one parameter. Interesting. I even find that this is very, very hard for me. I love chocolate chip cookies. So if I eat one chocolate chip cookie, like I'm super happy. And sometimes when I eat two, I'm like even happier. But when I eat like five or six, which I often do, I get very, very unhappy. But it's very, very hard for me to stop after one or two. Well, this is actually an idea I've talked about in terms of creativity and problem solving is to take the flip of something. There was the old Lay's potato chip slogan, bet you can't eat just one. If you flip it, The new slogan would be, bet you can eat just one. And so I give my students the assignment of market potato chips using the slogan, bet you can eat just one. And initially they'll say, oh, a giant potato chip or a potato (laughs) chip so spicy that one is enough. But ultimately what they get to is really the individually wrapped potato chip or essentially what we've called now the portion control package. And so people pay a premium for help in reducing their potential to overeat. I'd like to be able to enjoy one potato chip, one chocolate chip cookie, and not have too many. I also read your book, an older book called Why Not, which I really liked. And it was kind of laying out like tactical ways to brainstorm new ideas and essentially to innovate. What are some frameworks to help our listeners nurture their innovative or creative ideas? We just talked about one, take an idea that's out there and invert it. And turn it upside down. Yep. This is uh, kind so of like Charlie Munger is famous for doing some of those things. I didn't know that, but yep. sure. And it's going to solve a different problem. So somebody comes up with Red Bull. Okay. So what's the flip of that? Something that helps me go to sleep. And I don't have to be so smart always to think about Red Bull. Okay. There's life insurance. Well, flip that. Death insurance. All right. Well, life insurance is actually protecting me against death. So death insurance, in some sense, protecting me against living a long time. Ask, what is the opposite? And it won't necessarily solve the same problem, but it might solve a new problem and stimulate your thinking. The other tool that I really like is imagining you had unlimited resources and come up with something that is a stupidly expensive, but very successful solution. And then ask, how do we get 99% of the benefits at 0.001% of the cost? But by having the unlimited resources, it allows you to think expansively 
about what a great solution might look like. Interesting. One of the things Sequoia Capital, probably the most storied venture firm, is famous for is every when a partner wants to do a deal, they have mm-hmm. to write a memo saying sure. what would happen if everything went right. And I think a lot of smart people are really good at pointing out all the problems and everything sure. like that, but they have to write the story of like, what would go on if everything went right? And I really love that idea. Another thing I'm a huge fan of is looking at where incentives are misaligned. We just come to live with those things, but if you can see the misalignment of incentives, then you can fix them and come up with a new business. So a classic example of that is the incentives in car insurance are terribly misaligned. If I told you that you bought gasoline on an all-you-could-drive basis, you'd tell me that's crazy because uh-huh. we're giving people incentives to drive too much. But auto insurance is sold on a all-you-can-drive basis. Or you have these alternatives like a Metro Mile or something like that. So which Metro Mile it, is right. now changing it. They're the new kid on the block, if you yeah. like, and they're fixing that. But right now, the vast majority of people drive 10,000 miles, 100,000 miles, same price. And that gives people incentives to drive too much. It discriminates against women who drive less than men. And so Metro Mile is the upstart here. And let's be clear also, it's not just for driving, it's also for global warming. That essentially, the cost of insurance is equivalent in some sense to the cost of gasoline in terms of price per mile. And so if people had to pay for auto insurance, the more they drove, we'd be like doubling the price of gas. And that would have a big impact on congestion, on accidents. And it's not Why can't you just put it into the gas price? <laughs> yeah. it, it, it would be great in the sense that then you'd also you eliminate uninsured you'd eliminate uninsured drivers. You'd put an extra tax on heavy cars with poor efficiency. So I like that. And it's not just that; it's also the case of for doctors and malpractice insurance. OBGYN docs can't get malpractice insurance on a per case basis, and so therefore they can't work half time. So just like a tax oh, in New York. They have to work 11-hour shifts because the first eight hours are covering their nut. <laughs> Same thing in terms of if you're a obstetrician, you have to work eight months of the year to cover your expenses, and you only make profits on those last four months. Well, with an Uber, you can work part-time. Essentially, you're paying insurance, you're paying rent on the car on as-you-use-it basis. But in some ways, I mean, most of life is about these mismatched incentives that don't really make sense. Look and at all those can, opportunities then to fix yeah, things and, yeah, okay. and come up with better businesses. So that's a source of creativity. Is they're all Yes, you're absolutely right. They're all around us. And so let's find them and fix them. You are one of the few academics that also practices, you're starting businesses, you're being an entrepreneur and you're a professor. That is pretty rare. What translates well from academia into business building? I think one of the things that we try and do in academia is prove ourselves wrong as opposed to prove ourselves right. And that is a useful tool in terms of the world out there, not to convince yourself that everything you're doing is perfect. And it's good to combine that. When I was working on Honest Tea, it was with my partner, Seth Goldman. So Seth was the eternal optimist, and I was the person looking for (laughs) where are the challenges ahead. In a company, do you need like two parts optimism, one part pessimism or something? I don't know quite the ratio is, but you want to make sure you have both of those components. And sometimes it's hard to have it in the same person. Another is simply this question of just because people do it that way doesn't mean they're right. So I'll give you another honesty example in academia. There's a theorem in economics called the babysitter theorem. And what it says is you don't hire a babysitter and go to McDonald's. 
Why? Because it costs you 50 bucks for the babysitter and $10 for McDonald's. It's just, yeah. you know, you're not going to pay 60 bucks for the Big Mac. Well, if you look at the way bottled teas were before us, they would spend 10 cents on the bottle, 3 cents on the label, 3 cents on the cap, 20 cents on getting the bottle to the store. All the packaging, when you add it all up in the production, was 50 cents. And then they'd spend a half a penny on tea. <laughs> and effectively, it was like paying the babysitter, if you'd like, was all the packaging. And it made no sense to spend that much on the outside and so little on the ingredients. And we figured if we went and spent two cents on the tea, people could actually <laughs> tell the difference. <laughs> and since we were putting in a whole lot less sugar, we could actually spend more on ingredients too. We could use yeah, higher quality honey. Yeah. Sugar is, well, not that expensive, but when you're putting in 20 grams, it adds up. So if you're putting in only four grams, you can use maple syrup or honey or agave. So my view is I look at theory, I look at practice. And if practice doesn't match theory, I'm willing to say I bet on the theory, not the practice. And that I believe that if we put better ingredients in, that customers would actually pay for that and recognize it. One of the things you're famous for is also starting companies with your students or former students. Correct. What's the big thing that you look for when you're looking for talent, when you're kind of predicting someone's success, essentially? So first, I have the advantage of just having seen them over a couple of years. There are a couple of things that I care about. Separate from whether or not they're going to be successful, is this a person I want to spend a lot of time with? Because you can often spend more time with them than your spouse or your kids. Yep. And one of the things that's true about Seth is I feel like I'm a better person when I'm with him and I'm inspired by him. And so that alone is just an important criteria. Then, as I think it's Daniel Gross was one of your guests, having infinite energy. And essentially, Seth wakes up at five in the morning and goes running 10 miles. Meanwhile, I need a nap when I do that. Yeah, Daniel uh, really talks about this. Like He wants vigorous people. I think that may be one of the reasons why athletes are often so successful in these positions, that just having stamina and physical energy, I think, is important. And then having optimism and really being able to see the positive no matter what happens. And of course, connected with that is also caring about making the world a better place. In Hebrew, it's called tikkun olam, repairing the earth, that having something that is at your core, it's not about making money. It's about making a difference. So that when Friday comes around, people are disappointed because they have to wait till Monday again to get back to the mission. If you like, it's you can get excited about every bottle you're selling because you know you're making people's lives better. If there was like a hedge fund where you could invest in your Yale students and get a future percentage of the goodness they give to the world, like, do you think you would do well in that fund? I've invested in many, many of my Yale students, and I think I've done pretty well. The latest is a company called NCX, which I think Mark Benioff has taken a big stake in. They fly over trees with satellites and measure how much the trees have grown. And that's allowing farmers to keep their trees planted rather than cut down and creating a market for CO2 savings. That's really cool. A couple yeah. of personal questions. You've really been a well-known and renowned speaker, maybe your whole life. What advice would you give to folks that maybe aren't so great at public speaking, but want to get better? First, have a message that you care about. So speaking just for speaking purposes, I don't know. The same thing about writing a book is that there has to be a reason. There has to be something that you care about that you want other people to know about. If somebody else could have given your speech, I'm not sure it 
really matters. Practice, perhaps even practice with a hostile audience a little bit in terms of you don't need people who are just giving you encouragement, but people who will kind of question you. So are you comfortable with that so that you're okay if the people aren't necessarily giving you any feedback? I find the hardest thing these days is giving presentations where there's nobody on the other side of the Zoom. And so I've always asked folks to elevate some people to be participants or please turn your video on. Even if you're not saying anything, just the eye contact. Let me give you one thing I learned from a drama teacher. There's an often temptation to pan and scan, by which I mean you start left, you kind of go right, and you're not focusing on anyone in the audience. Instead, take one person in the audience and make super eye contact with them, so much so that it's a little bit embarrassing. And your eyes will react to theirs, theirs will react to yours. Mm. And 20 people around them will all think you're looking at them because yep. of that interaction. And so then everybody else will see you're making connection with the audience. Then having done that for 15 seconds, find somebody else. So instead of not focusing on anyone, if you'd like, don't worry about picking one person and find the person who's smiling, who's connecting with you and make that intimate between the two of you and then find somebody else to do the same thing with. All right. Now, sometimes you have to have negotiation with yourself. And I know there's a story where you pledged to one of your classes that you would teach a class wearing only a Speedo if you didn't hit your weight loss goal by a certain date. Is that a way of just basically forcing yourself to do something your current self that you know your future self would be happy with? Or This actually led to a website that was created called stick, stickk.com where you took out contracts on yourself. My dean called me in when he heard about this, and it was, if I didn't lose 15 pounds by the last class, I'd be teaching in a Speedo. (laughs) And he said, this is not very Yale. This is not professional. You can't do this. And I said, I don't know what you're worried about. It's not going to happen. The fact that I've made this contract means I'm going to be losing the weight. (laughs) And I also invited my students to join me in this if they wanted. I felt that it was not necessary for me to be the only one doing this. And I'd say a large number of them also lost the weight, although one student did have to show up in a Speedo. (laughs) But even I think he wasn't upset because I think he had lost 12 pounds out of 15. And so I think he was happy about it. And then actually ABC Primetime did two specials on this where we had random people have photographs of themselves in a Speedo, which were kept in envelopes and be released to the public if they didn't lose the weight. And one woman said, I know that being overweight will lead to diabetes, death, hypertension, so on. None of that's enough, but having these photographs out there- Embarrassment. That will do it. And I think she lost 30 pounds with no coach or anything like that. It's funny. I've had friends where they did something similar where they somehow put money in some sort of escrow thing, which would give it to a charity that they despised. That's stick.com. It's oh, that's probably stick. what they com. did. Okay, got it. And okay. actually, my favorite story there is one of the founders had a $5,000 contract with a colleague of his, which each would pay the other 5000 if they gained 10 pounds from their desired weight, and they could call in weights at any time. And so my friend called in his other person and made him pay the 5000 Oh, my gosh. Okay. And the guy says, you know, what a effing jerk you are. I mean, I can't believe you're making me do this. I don't like you anymore. Okay, I understood we did this, but I didn't really think you meant it. Why are you doing this? He says, well, look, I'm not doing it because I dislike you. It's that basically, I know that now that I've done this, you're going to call me on it. And therefore, I can't lose the weight. Because essentially, I want you to be my enforcer. And I know this is going to make you be my enforcer. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, last question we ask all of our guests. 
What is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? I'm going to sound a little bit unusual on this one. I think that people can wait before they start a company. That I see too many people graduating college and saying, I've got to do my startup. And at Yale, you can get six out of 10 right and still get an A. In a startup, you can get nine out of 10 things right and fail because that 10 thing, whether it be the financing, the ability to do sales, the ability to hire people, operations, any one thing can kill you. And the problem when you're 23 is there's just so many things you don't know and your ability to hire people. So yeah, you might get funded because you have this crazy idea, but I encourage you to work for somebody else and see all the mistakes they're making that you can avoid. See the things they're doing right. You have plenty of time. Seth didn't start working in Honest Tea until I think he was 28, 29. Then after 10 years of Honest Tea and a few more, he went to Beyond Meat, where he became executive chairman. Now he's also starting Eat the Change and Planet Burger. And so, yeah, be in a rush. Yeah, change the world. But also, there are so many things that go wrong. Take a little time before you jump into this. I love entrepreneurship. I mean, there are plenty of amazing people who are even, let's say, even their 50s and stuff Mm -hmm. who maybe haven't yet started a company, who want to start a company. It's one of the things. But maybe at that point, they just don't feel as confident or they don't feel they can do it. Or they're like, oh, I'm too old. I've heard that from multiple people before. I'm 52. I'm too old to start. How do we get them more confidence so they haven't felt like they haven't missed the boat? I think that those skills that you have in terms of wisdom and experience and networks and people you know who you can bring on board are exactly skills that are super essential. Now, look, if your startup is basically programming in your dorm room, okay, I got it. That you can do as a youngster. But most businesses require doing sales and the ability to have somebody else make their business dependent on yours when the person is 22 or 23 is super hard. So it's not nobody should do it, but way too many people are doing things that I just think are too scary. They don't have this necessary set of skills to make it work. So that's my maybe Debbie Downer, but- I love it. That's great. Now, where can people find you on the broader interwebs? There's a website called splitthepiebook.com, which has- Splitthepiebook.com, okay. Has sample chapters, has some videos, has, of course, links to buy it on Amazon, on Indie Book, and elsewhere. That's a great place to start. There's also a Coursera course that's free that people seem to like. It has perhaps the highest rating on Coursera. Oh my and, gosh. Okay. I'm taking this course. This sounds amazing. Okay. And they can re-listen to this podcast. Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, Barry Nailbuff, thank you so much for being our guest on World of Das. Really appreciate it. Thank you for making the pie big together. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.